0: This is Chase Burns, landowner, land manager, land broker, and this is the Prairie Farm Podcast. Well, today
1: we are here in West Central Illinois, beautiful West Central Illinois, a place that holds a very large part of my heart because this is where I grew up. It's kind of fun. I was taking Nick down uh, good old Highway 67, and uh, tell them about some of the local uh, history and stories. And, and uh, unfortunately, Highway 67 is like a uh, really dangerous road. So some of those stories were about like terrible tragedies that I knew of and, and things like that. But also where some good hunting ground was. And uh, Nick, at one point, when we turned off to get to where we are right now, he's like, oh, so this is where you're going to kill me.
2: <laughs> we we went, are in the middle of nowhere, guys. Right. There's, and, and that's
1: actually probably my favorite part of this area because uh where nick and i live we're in uh kind of south central iowa and uh, this may come as a surprise to you that uh there is a more middle of nowhere location than south central iowa Uh, but there certainly is you don't really have this kind of off the grid um there as you do here because we're kind of in the interstate 80 corridor there and uh um, Interstate 35 isn't too far away, 163 is close by, Highway 92, all these major roads that are just kind of in our our neighborhood there. So there's a lot of cities, but here in West Central Illinois, you can get lost. And I like to tell people, especially if you go, uh, you you can back me up on this probably, Chase. If you go like a right along the Mississippi River there, I would I would dub some of those areas as like wilderness you know right right there no man's land yeah no, yeah.
0: Man's land. no there's definitely plenty of that <laughs> yeah parts of mercer county yeah um, yep. and henderson and you know this area in general but yeah like you said getting lost uh you can get lost here that's i that's why we're here yeah that's kind of the point
1: yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah we were we'll, we'll get into what chase does here in a little bit but uh he talked about uh, how he kind of had this little uh bump in business from his land sales side of things uh, when he uh was coming out of Cove, and the world was going crazy, and people were like "Dude, we just want to we want to get lost, <laughs> we want to be able to escape to to a more uh remote place. Can you help me with this so uh it is there is something just nice about being away and and uh certainly uh the other thing I like about this area is there are so many people that are much more self sufficient than I think the average person in uh today's era it, it what the american life looks like now for most people is very different than this and i think this is healthier in most ways so uh, I, I like this place it's good to be here but uh i also have some history here at chase's uh farm where he lives uh back in i think it was 2018 chase you invited um a uh, bunch of guys out to your, your place and uh, kind of showed them what you've done as a land manager, how you've transformed this farm through the years. You told a lot of stories about um, uh, failures, a lot of stories about big victories, and a lot of stories about dreams that you still had for this piece of ground that you live on. It was just so cool to see that. And uh, there were some stories, you know, kind of, <laughs> Nick and I have joked about this before, when you work in the business of conservation, you're always an underdog, right? And so it's easy when you're an underdog to really develop a a memory and almost a, an emotional bond with some of the hardship stories because that's what fuels us, right? You're you, you, you like are fueled by almost the negative so that you come back stronger and, and accomplish more great work down the road. But one of those stories that you told not to bring up bad history here for you, but you talked about uh, a particular year when Oak wilt hit you real hard. You'd been dreaming of this property. This is something you and your wife have been saving for, for years. You finally had it and now your beautiful old mature Oaks that take a hundred years, to grow, so you only get one set of those in your lifetime. If you're doing the math on the other end of this podcast right now, um, they all
0: died. It was pretty defeating. It, uh, we we have uh, a decent sized body of timber, not huge, but uh, we really wanted to do everything we could to improve it, make it the best piece of timber around in this area, and and just restore a lot of what should have been there. Um, and we had spent the first. I think I spent the first five years or six years that we owned the farm Mm -hmm. working on it kind of block by block. Um, and so there was not a whole lot of timber left that we hadn't touched that we hadn't gone through all the steps and, and, you know, with a written forest management plan and implemented the timber stand improvement strategies. And then just within a six month period, all of our giant majestic oak trees just started dying. And it was, uh, it was, it was heartbreaking, you know, and and it wasn't just our farm either, though. I mean, it's a, it's a patchwork across all of this area. mm -hmm. uh, And it's, there's not a lot of rhyme or reason to it. There was a lot of farms that didn't get hit. I still, to this day, have been selling farms in this area that have those big, beautiful white oaks on it. Hmm. Um, But then the next block over, they're all dead. You know, and a lot of them are still standing there, but they're just giant, hollow, you know, skeletons of what they used to look like. Um, so, you know, it was in in some of the blocks in our timber, we had uh, intentionally removed maybe up to 50, 55. I think in one area it would probably have been close to 60% of the canopy. It was a lot of low quality wow uh, trees that really had just kind of dominated the stand because at some point sure. somebody fenced it and ran livestock on it. Yep. So there was not the natural oak regeneration process. It was just gone. Mm-hmm. You had these big crop trees, but there were, they were not reproducing. Right. Uh, and it had filled in with a bunch of undesirable stuff. So we were killing that many trees and planting in containerized oak trees, a uh, bunch of different species and some other hardwoods too. Um, and, and trying to, you know, kickstart the process. And, and yep. meanwhile, you know, uh, expand the crown of all those big oak trees and think okay yeah this is really gonna you know jump start the the regen process and then we lost the remaining 30 plus percent of the canopy that Aww. we had left and and so then you're left with literally well okay we meant to kill most of those but now they're all dead and uh so you, you basically you know had sections of timber that were starting over completely you know a, a whole new layer of succession from uh, six and eight foot tall, the trees that we had planted, and in, in to the ground. So um, it's come a long way in the short period of time. It holds a lot of deer because it's an a absolute yeah. jungle in there. Yep. But, uh, you know, that was a major setback, a big learning lesson. Um, you know, I. but at the same time, I would say we still did a lot of things right because we never put all of our eggs in that basket thinking mm-hmm. like, well, we have these big oak trees, so that's a thing, And you know, life is good. Like, yeah. we had already planted new oak trees underneath of or around and in the gaps between a lot of those big hardwoods. So when they died, it wasn't like, oh, now we got to scramble and figure out what to do about yeah. this. And, we're you know, we lost years after that before we even started doing it. Well, we'd already planted a lot more, but now we just, you know.
1: Yeah. Well, that's that's probably, that's my favorite part of the story there is that it didn't, it didn't sink the ship. It wasn't like, all right, well, this farm was really nice. Now, uh, because we lost all these these super desirable trees. And, and we should, as we're going to introduce Chase here more more uh, officially in just a second. But uh, Chase loves to, he's an outdoorsman. He loves to hunt, loves uh, just being outside, even if it's just observing nature. And uh, the white oak tree, uh, uh, well, white oak species, I should say, they are about as good as it gets from a food standpoint of course there's some habitat value there for squirrels and birds and things like that but uh nick you're
2: gonna have to edit this Ken, you get i gotta i gotta have you ken's famous for for speaking in the side (laughs) of his mic sorry guys well we'll hopefully it'll be louder yeah
1: yeah here we go so you know there's tons of value there from white oak species of trees uh iowa's state tree the bur oak is a white oak species but um they uh uh to lose those would be devastating Uh, to anyone however you guys had a plan like you said you rolled forward with it and now if you go out there and and we're able to check out uh that timber stand that chase has here on his place it's 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 a great place and it's a place where you can still hunt and enjoy it and and so uh the failure kind of launched you forward
0: yeah it looks a lot different than it did when we bought it but that was kind of the plan from the start anyway um just a lot of it was at our hand and some of it was at the hand of nature so it's kind of you you just uh, th- things are always changing in the ecosystem, whether mm-hmm. that's prairie or whether it's in your your forest or whatever. Um, it just kind of happens in slow motion, and so most people don't really notice it. They don't know what's going on. They don't see the changes until like ten years later or twenty years later. They right. wow, this remember that used to look a lot different than it does today. Yeah, if you know what you're looking for, you see it every every season. You yeah, know? so um, it's fun to to live on a farm rather than just go visit the farm. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like when I see it's the opposite of this, but when I see my kids every day, I don't always notice how fast they're growing. You take them over to their aunt and uncles or somebody, you know, that you haven't visited or seen in six months or whatever. Wow. Your kids are getting huge. You know, they look so much different than (laughs) they did at Christmas or whatever. So, you know, you can become blind to it to some extent when you see it all the time, you don't notice the changes as much either. But when you learn, you know, what you're looking for, Um, I think it becomes more apparent to the people who see it every day because you know what to look for. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, My wife and I, I've said this a million times in the podcast,
1: my wife and I recently moved to the family farm. And uh, we have far less habitat on our farm than than Chase does here. But uh, So I haven't been able to observe as much of that change. Um, But you do become so much more in tune by being there every day as opposed to, every once in a while and seeing the big changes over, you know, wow, that, you know, I hadn't been here since April, like you said, and now I'm here in October and man, that's a lot different, but you're just so in tune with every little change along the way, you know, almost, you know, so you may not see the big changes as much when you're seeing them every day, but you're, you know, when they're happening too, when you're there every day. And, uh, it's just been cool to be so much more in tune with a piece of ground now that I'm living on it instead of just visiting it. And, uh, uh, that's the whole point of, of us doing this podcast really, is to help people develop that connection to, even if you don't live on a farm, you know, if you visit a piece of public ground or um, just driving down the road and you're looking out, Hey, you know, somehow I'm a part of this ecosystem. How do I have value there that, uh, means something to me? And so, uh, I love hearing stories like that even if they're kind of a hardship story. Uh just the value that your family has placed on this ground and then the changes that the positive changes that have happened uh through that time are they're great victories to celebrate too. So Chase though it's it's uh you know managing ground isn't just for yourself. You've done that for a lot of other people through the years. You've you've worked uh Uh, a land management company. You also uh, do some uh, land sales. I shouldn't even say some, a lot of land sales. And we're going to tell people how they can follow along with you. And you can see all of that um, from a uh, social media standpoint. Um, But you you do all sorts of things, auctioneer license. Can you kind of just sum up for everybody what, what it is you're busy with all the time?
0: So um, for about the last 10 years, I've been fully self-employed, um, Doing land sales, spending, bridging my time between land sales or land brokerage uh, and land management. We have a company, Dogwood Land Management, um, where we it kind of started because I had sold a couple of larger mixed parcels or timbered parcels to absentee landowners. And by the end of the, the sales process, they determined like, wow, you really know a lot about this stuff. Like I'm, mm-hmm. I need somebody to help me figure out how to manage the CRP field. Or, uh, you mentioned a forest management plan. I don't even know what that is, but it sounds right. like a need one, mm-hmm. you know? So it became their, their local knowledgeable source for those things. And so they're like, who do I hire to do all this stuff? Well, uh, there wasn't anybody, thank goodness, which just means, you know, that, that need became evident. To me, right, so it was yeah. like, well, okay, there's a niche. All right, yeah, I'll do that. You know, we'll do that. And then we started buying more equipment and started whatever. And um, frankly, when we first bought this farm, I knew how to do a lot of things. Or I had a lot of book knowledge about how to do those things from education and right, so forth. Yeah. But it was like I had eh, so, so, you know, practical experience of actually doing a lot of it firsthand. It was like, mm-hmm. to me, that was part of the beauty of, of becoming a landowner was like, now I actually get to apply. <laughs> yeah, you, like you pull I, the levers right, now. <laughs> but it, it isn't, it isn't just books and YouTube and, and college yep. anymore. It's like, I actually get to go out and play and figure some of this stuff out myself right. and experiment. Um, so I had been doing some of that, but then to have people saying, well, I need help doing this. And, and immediately I recognize like, well, at the very least, even if this is kind of a side hustle or whatever, it was like, well, that'll let me buy a drill. It'll let me buy Mm -hmm. maybe a skid steer or buy, you know what I mean? If some of those tools that on my small farm where I'm not making enough money to, you know, think about spending the kind of money it costs to have some of those tools for just my own use. Mm. It's like, yeah, well now uh, that was appealing at the beginning. It was like, okay, you know, if I can buy, I don't, I couldn't even justify owning a tractor at first on my own farm. Sure. I'm like, okay, but if I can use it for paying jobs, you know, for clients, then yes, of course I can. So that was, that was, you know, initially how it kind of got started. And then it became where it was like, whoa, I'm, there's a lot of work to be done here. And as it grew, then I just, it became basically, I was working two full-time jobs all the time. Um, so pretty quickly after that, I decided, well, I had to leave the, the real day job behind yeah, right, and, yeah. and step, you know, out of the nest and go full-time in land sales, lane management stuff, which is just the dream come true. And I hear that a lot of times, like a lot of people say, wow, you just have the coolest job. You have a dream job. And I'm like, I do, I really do. I don't take it for granted. I'm mm-hmm. super blessed. Um, and I wouldn't change that, but at the same time, like it's definitely not for everybody. Like I, I, would, yeah. I would say with a word of caution, yeah, it's a you know, best thing ever, except like you, sh- you probably shouldn't go do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 uh, it's a major life change and it's, it is, uh, it, it's difficult work a lot of days, but mm-hmm. what's um, that phrase?
2: You work 80 hours a week, so you don't have to work 40. Something <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah, That's yeah, yep. so,
0: yeah. So, you know, as, as any entrepreneur would, would tell you that, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, struggles that you're going to face along the way. But, um, just what the, was... Uh,
2: when you first jumped into that what were some of the biggest hoops you had to jump into especially when you start going full
0: time with land management and and land sales so you know so i would say the, the biggest hoops or the biggest hurdles that you cross early on is just people would uh ask you to do a certain job that you weren't equipped to do i would that had to be probably the biggest jump uh if, at the beginning was like all right when i first bought a farm uh, I took to heart, you know, a lot of the books I had read, <laughs> like I'll credit Aldo Leopold coming from yeah. a, you know, a hundred year ago oh, generation. A quote. So, somebody mm-hmm. will, you know, say that like, well, all you really need is an ax and a shovel, you know, to oh, manage, right, yeah. to manage habitat or manage land. It was like, well, okay. So with a, a shovel to plant trees and a chainsaw to kill them, I can do a lot of what I need to do. And then I'd add a drip torch to that equation. And now we're in business. Like I yeah. can manage almost anything that's on my land with this. Well, you can but you can't scale it very well. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, yep. and you can, you're only going to get so many acres done in a day, which means you're not going to make a whole lot of money if you're doing it for somebody else. So, um, finding the crew, finding the right people to tackle mm-hmm. some of the bigger jobs that are just absolutely labor intensive. And there's no way around that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also buying some of the pieces of equipment that will let you, you know, take on more of the jobs and and eventually where we found our niche was like not not planting food plots i get calls every year (laughs) people you know hey i bought this farm i i need somebody to put in a couple quarter acre a half acre kill plots for me can you come and put in these little micro plots for me (laughs) i could go broke doing that yeah and that's not a joke i mean like um there's there's almost no money to be made doing that um, and it, that's money is not why any of us get into that business, you know, mm-hmm. but right. you can't so afford to go broke. Right? I like it. I so like being the bills, it, yeah. just, So we right. want to stay that way. Right. So, um, so just finding understanding like where there is any profit margin in, in the habitat management business, land management business, and optimizing those projects so that you make enough to pay, to continue to do all of the other projects that you're passionate about that really probably don't pay that well. Mm -hmm. um so it evens out and we don't cherry pick and you know i haven't like we did not grow a a business out of just saying like well we only want to do the parts of the job that pay really well if i did i would say we don't really want to manage land we just want to we just want to have an excavating company yeah we Mm -hmm. just want to buy some heavy equipment and the tile machine and yeah Yeah. life that way It, it would be a lot more profitable it would be yep um but I couldn't sleep at night for one yeah, yeah. thing, you know. That's really not that was no, never my passion to be self-employed so that I could do those things. It was Yeah, it's important to mention yeah, that. Make make wildlife habitat better, uh leave land better than the way that you found it and you know, yeah. it's a good life.
1: Well and and you, you know, I just I was just having this conversation with my father in law where uh we were talking about people who everyone's got their own value system for what they're looking for in a job. And uh, you talked about this idea of, you know, don't do what I'm doing. It's a great job, but don't do what I'm doing. And the I think the message in there is most people aren't going to be comfortable with not having a lot of the security that comes from, like you used earlier, you know, a quote-unquote real job or your your day-to-day job or whatever. You know you, things like uh, retirement plans built into your your salary package, you know, and and uh, end of the year bonuses and and uh, uh, health insurance and all that, all those securities that we grow so comfortable with. But I think there's a valuable lesson here: is if that doesn't really mean all that much to you and you're miserable doing what you're doing, look to take a brief step like Chase and his wife did, where yeah. you know i'm looking for x y and z what i'm doing now is really providing that for me and uh, i'm willing to give up these things to chase that dream and uh so i think it's very inspiring that you were willing to uh just kind of jump in and and uh not maybe know for sure how well it was gonna it was gonna turn out but here you are a decade later and it's only grown and and uh that's kind of what i did with with coming over to hawks you know the, when you're I worked in education for eight years and there is not anything more systematic, <laughs> systems yeah. oriented on the planet yeah. than being a unionized uh, you know, teacher. That when giant he, sacrifice
2: he made. He, he <laughs> quit his six figure income in right, right, yeah, education yeah, yeah. and right.
1: Yeah, yeah. Teachers there's there's no secret there. Teachers do not make a lot of money. But there are a lot of nice little perks too that go along with that. But it was so worthwhile to um, gain all the things that aren't going to show up, you know, in a bank account.
2: I remember one day a- Kent got done and he'd been outside for like 10 and a half hours and it was hot and he was just hoeing weeds. That's what he was doing all day. And I was concerned. I was like, man, this dude's going to quit and I'm going to have to go <laughs> back out there and hoe those weeds again. <laughs> and I, I was just checking in. I was like, man, how are you feeling? You had a long day where he's like, I've never felt this alive. I get to be outside. My last job had no windows <laughs> and he was just yeah, he was like big no old window. smile on his face. So I was like that's awesome. Yeah, and and there's no there's no
1: dollar amount to to that, you know yeah. what I mean? And there's you can't quantify that. But uh it's so important. So important to consider that aspect of working and and the example I was talking about with my father-in-law was uh he's from New England and uh there was this old TV show, I don't know if you guys have seen it before, it's called uh Filthy Riches. I think it was on uh discovery or nat geo or something like that and there's these two guys from maine and uh so him being a new englander you know he's it's real amused when he sees maniacs as he calls them on uh on a tv show or something like that and their thick new england accent and everything and what those guys did for a job every day is they'd go out at low tide and dig uh, i think they were uh, called them blood worms uh out of the like muck from at the bottom of, you know, the bay.
0: That sounds fun. And,
1: yep, they'd go in their hip boots, <laughs> and they'd pull as many of those, and they get like a quarter per worm. they get, you know, five-gallon buckets full of these worms, take them to the bait shop. There's no retirement plan for that. There's no <laughs> health insurance for that. No. But those guys lived on their own terms, you know what I mean? And that's what they valued. That was their value yeah. system, and they were willing to adopt the whole lifestyle, everything that goes along with living on digging worms for a job. And you can tell those guys – loved what they were doing it was every day was a, a new yeah. adventure for them and so uh you know people that live close to the land like chase does yeah. i think they've tapped into that they've yeah. said you know what this is more important to me than what corporate america says should be important to me yeah. and uh more important than clean vehicles too <laughs> right <laughs> that's right you don't, yeah. when you live out in the, off the grid you never have a clean car no yeah my dad always criticizes me for that our vehicles are, are it's hopeless there's no point we live on a gravel road and there's never gonna have a i have room. that
0: conversation all the time with with land buyers uh, you know they tell me what their ideal parcel looks like and they're, mm-hmm. they're describing it and uh and i'll say okay how important is you know this is usually when i meet them for the first time or we meet up and i'm showing them a parcel or something and uh, you notice they have a, you know, nicely shined, yep. you know, waxed, brand new looking vehicle. And they say, how important is it to keep your vehicle looking like that? Oh, uh, why? What do you mean? You know, and it's, I'm like, well, <laughs> we can go look at some other farms that are off the beaten path or whatever. But um, sometimes you can just tell, you know. Mm, yep. um, and when they see me show up and it, if it's been a really busy week, even if I washed the truck three days ago, it, you can barely read the decals <laughs> on the side of it because it's, it's absolutely filthy yes. with the roads I drive. And, uh, and and they look at it like, well, I don't really want a vehicle that looks like that, you know. And <laughs> said, well, you know, that's, that's fine. You need to understand that, you know, what that compromise is. And, yeah. and like, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I would love to have a nice, shiny, clean vehicle all the time, too, but is one of the small compromises that you're going to yeah. make to live yes. in God's country. Yes. You know, so when you when you get off the beaten path, you just accept that like yeah, I'm going to take 25 to 30 minutes to get to a grocery store and yep. even if I wash my vehicle once a week, it's probably going to look like this at least 50 or 60% of the time. <laughs> exactly. Um so there's there's a lot of trade-offs, but it, you know, to me it's like I would do it. I would do it a hundred times over. You couldn't pay me enough to live in suburbia, frankly, but that's, that's (laughs) that's just the way that I'm wired. And, and I'm not, uh, that's not meant to be derogatory in any way towards the people that do. Um, some of the nicest people that I've ever met, you know, are very happily planted in small towns or in, you know, cul-de-sac and suburbs or have cookie cutter homes that are on quarter acre, half acre parcels and all of that, but they want to own a piece of land so that they can go out and enjoy nature and do those things, and that's that's the commonality, that's the thing that binds us. Mm-hmm. Uh, the experience is just a lot different when you actually are living on it, when you're immersed in it. Um, my commute from work is about 130 yards <laughs> past walls of yeah. prairie grass, yeah. you know, yeah, to my right. office, and and that's you know, I mean, we chose to build here and forge a really hard life uh, by doing it intentionally because you know, the, the benefits so far outweigh the cost. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's
2: almost like a, a philosophical thing there where uh, you can have freedom, but you don't get all the comfort you want. Or you can have tons of comfort and, and, and tons of cush, but it almost comes with a lack of freedom. And I know that... Oh, 100%. I know there's this big talk of if you have enough money, you can be free and stuff like that. But But can you? Like, then you're kind of a slave to like... You know, what you've with the system, system that's yeah. built around you, and and uh, I it's just interesting when the when they say, Hey, it seems like you want to get away, but you don't like you're saying, you don't the compromise to be able to get away isn't something people are always willing to pay. But something I found is if they experience it, whether a forced experience or just a willing experience, when they experience the freedom then the price to pay for the freedom becomes very small because all of a sudden they've had a, a taste of it. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's really cool. Because when people go hunting, usually they start liking hunting. It, it's More often yeah. than not, uh, if yeah. you've been hunting, you enjoy it.
1: Well, so much of modern living is an insulation against a lot of the realities that our ancestors just accepted and and Mm. what was life every day and and you used a good word there nick comfort um you to have this lifestyle that chase has adopted you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable a lot and or have i i heard somebody once describe themselves as i'm not a going back to your example of hunting i'm not a great hunter i'm just really good at being uncomfortable and uh, <laughs> that's uh, I have a high tolerance for discomfort. It, embracing wow. the suck. That's right. It, that's well, right. Yeah. And and there's so much truth to that for uh, living a life that is you know closer to the land. To and in, here's another little, intentionally more yeah, difficult. Right. Yeah. And and uh, when you do so too, you notice things waking up inside of you. You know, there's greater alertness. There's you're living in the moment
0: more. You're yeah. Quick, you're, that before I before you keep going and I totally lose my thought train. No, uh, go for it. Yeah. A couple of years back, somebody asked me about that. Like they had been to our place, uh, must've been probably 12, 12 years ago or so. It'd been quite a while back. Sure. Um, and we had a, we had a really nice home. It was only a few miles from here and it was on like three and a half acres overlooked a little Creek in the bottom. It was a cool Mm -hmm. place, but it was in the country and it was surrounded by cornfields. This property came up for sale. It was close it was in the right area right school district that was important to us at the time it was like all right it's it it wasn't as big as what i wanted but it was everything checked all the boxes we gotta own it so we did and my wife would have been completely content like jackie loved the house that we were in it was great it was done (laughs) things are clean and ready you know Uh and she would have been one of the people who's like perfectly comfortable to just have the farm that like you go to sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, you go yep. hunt there, you go play around for the afternoon or whatever, then you come back home. Right. Um, and to me, I wanted our kids to experience something different than that. Didn't want a farm that they just go to. I wanted them to wake up every morning and look out the window and see deer standing in the yeah. prairie grass at the edge of the yard. Mm-hmm. I wanted them to, you know, walk uh, from the office or from the, the classroom and in and, and the evenings and, uh, and hear quail whistling or, mm-hmm. you know, hear... Um, you hear all the other wildlife that just isn't present if you're not immersed in it. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it was like, uh, it's a different lifestyle. And, and like you said, it, it was something that like, uh, if you've experienced it before, you wouldn't know how to be without it. And so yeah. I, I have a lot of friends who I grew up with, who grew up on the farm, went to college and then moved away from the farm, go work some job mm-hmm. somewhere else, chasing dollar or whatever, yep. uh, or just find love, you know, end up getting married, move somewhere, yep. but they didn't come home to the farm. Uh, And some of them will miss it at some point in life that, you know, if the farm sells or whatever, it it might've been something that's sentimental that, you know, uh, it might be bothersome to them. A lot of them, I don't think they ever look back. I think they're just like, eh, you know, that was, that's what my dad did or that's what my granddad did. It doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that that's what I have to do. Mm -hmm. Um, I want my kids to learn whatever future, whatever path God has for them, I want them to follow it. And I want them to just actually just run full steam into it. Mm -hmm. But with this, experience kind of impregnated in their mind early on i think they'll always either have an appreciation for it uh they'll have a a depth and an understanding of nature and of creation that most people never get Mm -hmm. uh, and they'll carry that with them forever and i do think that at some point in time uh, like a lot of my clients have, I've seen it where they say, you know, I grew up hunting. I grew up, grandpa had a farm, grandma had a farm, whatever. Uh, now nobody has a farm. My kids don't get Mm -hmm. that experience. I gotta be the person that buys a farm so that we have a place to go to again. And I I would see that they will yearn for land ownership. They will want to own something like this so that they can steward it so that they can have that legacy that they pass on to their kids or have a place that they go take their grandchildren and uh, their friends or whomever Mm -hmm. to go escape the busyness of the world and, you
1: know, and learn. No, that's that's beautifully said, and, and it's true. You know, you could that, that could almost be like a uh, midwestern phrase. You know, you're from the Midwest when you talk about the farm that your family used to have. You know, it's it's mm. kind of it's a sad it's a sad reality, but it's true. Yeah. And to fight against the current by saying no, we're going to keep one, and we're going to have one that you say this is our family farm. And and uh, you're right, maybe your kids will grow up, and and maybe that path that they end up taking does take them away from a place like this but they'll always have that appreciation and uh they'll always have that system of values where when these issues are presented in their life when they do become you know maybe after you're gone and they become the name on the deed for this farm it's not just an easy oh yeah go ahead and what what's the dollar amount on that you know that's more important to me it'll be something that they'll want to preserve and and even it could go as far as politically speaking on voting issues you know or or zoning issues you know uh, i here's my uh this is going to ruin my any attempt but i i think it's aldermen right or city councilors or is it, uh, county county Board or something that's in charge of zoning permits, you know for like oh, this was zoned in agricultural land now we want to put it into commercial zoning or whatever. Mm-hmm. I thought about running for whatever political office that is just to vote no on every single one of us we want to we want to we want to zone this commercially no you, that's are, just the, you are the opposite of progress yeah, that's right? right that's right <laughs> i would get one term <laughs> one's well, all you
2: need <laughs> now that this is public right. you're not getting any term i'm sorry
0: man
1: <laughs> i should probably start with figuring out what office that actually Mo- is Move that. back
0: here and run for office you? Yeah. <laughs> please
1: i tell that to my wife all the time she's like you make life so hard for yourself. (laughs) It's true. It is, but uh, no, it's swimming against the current. It's important. And what you just said is a perfect transition to the next thing here on your place. So if, if you could uh, uh, come and actually, if you follow chase on social media, he posts a lot of stuff from his, his uh, uh, property here that, that we're on right now. Um, You get an idea of there is a, utility aspect to this. You have your, your office and your shop here for your equipment and, and doing the land management side, but also an office for, you know, taking customer calls and, and people who want to purchase ground for themselves. Um, you have the house here, which is a really cool place. Um, uh, if we had more, t- maybe we can interview another time and ask you about the process of you guys uh, used a what's the correct term here? Pole pole barn construction, uh, yep. barn
0: Barndo. A lot of people are calling them a barn dominium. Yeah,
1: barn dominium, and it's beautiful. Post frame home. Yeah. Yep, yep. Post frame home, beautiful uh, setup that they have, and um, uh, you, you see that side of it. You see the hunting side of it with uh, uh, you know big stand of timber and all the trails that have been uh put in through there to to not just make it easier for them to you know hunt it but for wildlife to move through it and use it uh you'd find food resources for the wildlife you'd find uh our favorite part here this beautiful uh, stand of uh, prairie grasses right out the window here it's really tall yeah my Some really tall big blue you got in there yeah. yeah but uh you you have all there's also a livestock side to uh what you guys do so can you kind of mm-hmm. just explain how you guys have leveraged, what is it, about 50 acres? that you have? 55. Yep. 55 acres here. How you guys
0: have made use of this 55 acres? Yeah. So it, it wasn't without uh, a lot of planning, but we had a lot of goals. when we, Like a lot of people do when they're buying their first piece of land, especially if it's something they're going to build a house on. It's like, yep. how are we going to check as many boxes of, as possible uh, and enjoy all of the, the – farm living and the homestead activities that we want to do, but at the same time, uh, live in, um, uh, harmony, I guess, with the wildlife and with, uh, with your forest and and not damage it by doing all of those sure. things. So, um, when we first bought a farm and it had, it was remote, the road died, like 600 yard or 600 feet short of our, driveway entrance it was just dirt after that there Uh was no power there was no there were no buildings here there was nothing and you know because of that it it was like it was remote it was untouched it got very little human intrusion whatever Mm -hmm. so there were big deer here and some of my good friends you know that we were I had them out and we're looking at the farm and you know scouting the hang stands for the first time and stuff and like someday I'm going to build a house right up here on this hilltop and they were like oh you're going to ruin the deer hunting chase (laughs) when you put a house out here everything's going to change just so you know Maybe you're right. Again, back to it was more important to me for the kids to grow up on the farm and be immersed yeah. in it. Okay, I, I love to hunt mature deer, and I know they don't handle human presence and intrusion, very sure. well. but uh, there there is more wildlife present on this farm today than there was when we bought the farm mm. 12 years ago. Um, we have more diversity. It holds a lot more deer today than it did. We have tons of turkeys. We have quail. We have pheasant. We have... Uh, a lot of species that you, we didn't see hardly yeah, at all gone, the first couple no. of years. Um, and then, you know, always looking for like new species that, um, that weren't present. they like, well, if you're doing enough things, right. Every once in a while, you're going to bring in somebody that, you know, just pops up on trail camera, uh, like we don't have hardly any red Fox around here, but when mm-hmm. I, I'm like, someday I'm going to get a red Fox on trail camera. And when I do, I'm going to know it's because we did a lot of things, right? Yeah. And if I get a badger on trail camera, which we did this year and we oh, also got a river cool. otter and we got, you know, so you can, you can start doing things, uh, that when you see those indicator species, something yep. shows up kind of, out of the blue that's like, well, that's different. You know, yep. well, why are they here? Well, you know, so, so going back to your original question, we had a lot of goals in mind. Uh, my wife was an ag teacher, uh, when we first bought the place. And so she loves to grow things. She wanted a greenhouse. She wanted a big garden. Uh, she's also always been a horse lover and kind of, you know, a rodeo girl back in the day and that sort of thing. So it was like, okay, we need to have a place for horses. And she very patiently waited a long time for me to start (laughs) building fence and build a barn and and do some of that stuff. But, um, but it was always part of the picture. And so we kind of had a space reserved for that and was like, all right, we're going to lay this property out. Um, that lets us do all of those things without, uh, you know, with minimal impact to all of the other purposes that we wanted it to serve. Mm -hmm. And, and then, so like managing the prairie grass and the timber in the, uh, the native forbs were, you know, yeah, there's, there's for aesthetics and for a lot of other reasons in wildlife, but another big goal was to have and keep honeybees. And it was like, all right, well, we definitely need a lot of diversity. And so, we you know, managing for, uh, different plant species all the way along it so that it would bear fruit to us in other ways. So Uh, we have honeybees we keep them amongst the apple and the parrot orchard Um, we're starting to plant some some cherry and peach trees and things like that too so we're always kind of adding to the homestead stuff Um, but now we have we have a big greenhouse and we have a couple horses here we have ducks and chickens and all of that stuff but um, we also have cattle well the cattle right now live on another farm that's a few miles down the road okay our intention is uh to be able to pick up some more ground and expand that and but continue to do the same types of things to have the cattle kind of living in symbiosis with wildlife habitat yeah and that it, you know all my life i thought i don't really think that that's possible because <laughs> yeah. i had always only hunted timbered properties where somebody just put a fence up around a block of timber and turned the cows loose yeah it. well they yeah. will pretty well ruin a body of timber oh yeah yep but there is a way uh we used to have herded herd animals here we used to have bison Mm-hmm. Uh right here where we're sitting right now, there used to be bison, there used to be elk, yep. there used to be a lot mm-hmm. of other uh hoof species running through here, and it was part of the, the disturbance of the landscape. Mm-hmm. Um so there is a practical way to use it, but you have to be really intentional about yeah. you know how instead of doing uh strip disking or or seasonal tillage or you know, some other types of disturbance to rejuvenate certain stands or setback succession you can flash graze and you can do a lot of those types of cool things so we've been researching and studying and networking with people who do a lot of that stuff in small scale and trying to implement more and more and more of that stuff every year to continue the goal of managing wildlife habitat um, adding diversity and you know having it look as much as possible like people don't live here yeah, but at the same time, you know, we do want to live here and we right. want to enjoy it. So
2: well, it, it's interesting because people living in an area almost has become a curse on the area, but it, it doesn't have to be. We we've right inter- the past a few of the past few people we've interviewed have said that we actually don't have prairies like we wouldn't have had prairies like we had if the native americans didn't steward them so well and help actually grow the perimeter of where the prairies were and so i i feel like the way we were made we were made to steward and live with land very well um and instead we've just kind of lorded over it you know a little bit kind of had it bent to it uh bent to our will um which, as we are seeing, is, is causing some serious issues. But yeah. you really got me with the cows, man. That is interesting. I've, in all our time talking with people, I've never had anyone even even talk about cows. How, how is that? How are they integrating? What, what have you found?
0: So, um, so I I had a friend a while back uh, from Oklahoma that was always dead set on being able to manage good quality timber, but to be able to graze it with his cattle. And mm-hmm. I just would shake my head. Like, he's a super smart guy, really knowledgeable about forest management and about native sure. ecosystems and stuff. So I put a lot of stock in what he would say, but the more he talked about it, I thought, you're off your rocker. Like, yeah. Because, again, all, all <laughs> of my experience was that cattle ruin timber. They, yeah. ru- they ruin – Yeah, every timber. shed hunter
1: knows when you see a
0: cow pasture, you may as well just cross it off the list. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, you know, there's uh, – there's a big stigma there to overcome for one thing. But the other thing is the reason that that's the case, you know, the reason that we all have that impression is because that's how most people do it. They overstock they, the, the mindset and, and I always have to be careful about saying this in a way that doesn't hurt feelings because, um, we're bringing can, somebody – after I, this interview, Chase, we're bringing somebody on to hurt all those feelings for you. <laughs> so so uh, in comparison, <laughs> you're really going to be Right. So um, – and it, it's me being PC more than anything. Uh, you know, I, I work with a lot of farmers and a lot of ranchers. I'm not mm-hmm. a farmer. I pretend to be a rancher. Uh, I love it. You know, and it's it, – at heart, that's that's really, you know, who I am. Sure. Uh, I just don't own enough land to just do that full right, time yeah. where I would. Um, so having – Livestock you know, is the same as somebody who row crop farms in that they wanna squeeze every dollar they possibly can out of their operation because mm-hmm. that's how they pay the bills. That's how right. they make a living. They own the land, maybe they inherited the land, however they came into it. Uh, stewardship is usually kind of second place to how do I get the most out of the most production out of what I have, right. what my resources are. And that generally involves clearing as many flattish acres as they can so that Mm -hmm. they can plant more crop, uh, fencing off every piece that's not flat enough to farm and kicking some livestock out on it, you know, and it's that, that has been the mindset for the last 150 plus years is like, that's how you make land pay for itself uh, or that's how you make or muster out living out here. And then wildlife will just have to get along with it. Um, Thankfully we're not trying to make a living off of cattle or any other livestock for that matter. Um, We're doing it in a sustainable way so that we can, we're very field to fork here. Um, We want to grow as much of our own food as we possibly can. We sell some calves every year. Um, But the main reason that we have livestock is so that we can enjoy meat that we know where it came from, Mm -hmm. that we, our kids got to have a hand in growing um, from the breeding to the calving to, you know, the whole process and then processing. Uh, We put in a a walk-in cooler here in our shop a couple of years ago so that we could butcher our own and do all of that stuff under wow, roof. Awesome. Not, not because it's easier or not because it's necessarily even cheaper. I mean, you know how many deer <laughs> or how many, how many head of beef I'll have to butcher yeah. to like save the cost of processing. Yeah, It, it won't pencil, <laughs> but, right. but that's not, that's not the point. You know, it was a, we want to do it uh, as much of it as we possibly can so that we appreciate every time we cook something, cook steak on the grill or, Uh, or have venison or, you know, whatever cooked greens that came out of the garden, Mm -hmm. it's, you worked hard for it and you know where it came from and you enjoy it. And it just honestly tastes better. Yeah. So, you know, that's the homestead aspect of it. And that's what, that's my wife's passion. Like Jackie is super, super passionate about uh, sustainable agriculture and homesteading and Mm -hmm. uh, being uh, self-sustaining, being able to, to grow and produce as much of what you you require as possible and to use as much as possible out of everything that you grow or produce. Um, so that's kind of, that's where our heart is and having cattle becomes part of that process, part of that operation. Um, but then, you know, my land, uh, stewardship, I guess the, the, the passion that I have is like, well, how do we do that in a way that, how do I use that as a tool back to Mm -hmm. your question? Um, so, you know, when a lot of people, when they plant, if they plant a, a piece of prairie grass, they take a piece of tillable ground and they convert it. Uh, if it's in CRP, this is where most people learn about prairie grass or yep, prairie mm-hmm, management yep, in general is, right. is like through the CRP program. That's the first experience that most farmers have with it. Is like mm-hmm. prairie grass or, you know, those forbs they call weeds, whatever that they, they would <laughs> typically just spray <laughs> yeah. around the edge or, you know, mow off or whatever. Once they figure out that like, Oh, I can get paid to put that in. And then, then they start learning something about it. And, the three practices, you know, they have like interceding um, prescribed fire and then some sort of strip disking or some sort of tillage disturbance. Mm -hmm. And the reason that there's a, a tillage component to managing prairie is goes back to like the bison herds. So when, when bison would Mm -hmm. run across the landscape and graze it down really hard and basically till it up with hundreds and thousands of hooves, Mm -hmm. uh, it changed the, the, ecosystem, you know, for, for a period of several years after it, you know, they would pass, it would take time for that prairie to recover from it. But when it did recover, it came back thicker, it came back with more diversity, it, it changed uh, monocultures into different types of ecotypes. So um, you can use livestock in a lot of ways to kind of replicate that so you know you if it's in crp well okay you can't really just graze or can't do you know whatever Mm -hmm. there are certain restrictions to doing some of those things when you're married to a program right but you can do the same thing with timber uh if you just kicked out livestock in a fenced in piece of timber and had them just graze it to the ground and left them in there for months at a time yeah they would absolutely ruin i mean they would they would eliminate most of your early successional stuff Mm -hmm. but deer are different than cattle um cattle will Deer browse, they will walk through a body of timber and they'll eat a little bit of this forb and then they'll eat a little bit of the leaf off that oak tree and then they'll eat a little bit of the hard mass that's on the ground and they want a diverse diet all of the time. Mm-hmm. Cattle are, I don't even want, cattle were bred basically mm-hmm. to just eat grass and to yep. eat, you know, one, basically one eat type of food, uh, to fill their digestive system mm-hmm. and it, for them to change over to a different food type, it takes a longer period of time. They got to recolonize with a lot of different bacteria and stuff yep. to break down different foods. So they're not looking to take in 20 or 30 or 50 different types of food every day. Right. But If you, if you flash graze, um, there's some really good resources we found on YouTube and things like that, that, um, so flash graze would be like very short term, mm-hmm. you know, heavy duration or short, short duration, uh, but you you can heavily stock a small area and let them graze on it for 2 3 days mm-hmm. and you know or, or sometimes maybe just like 8 hours and then yeah. move them wow. back off of yep. there. but there's a lot of nutrition in that but the first couple of things that they generally eat are undesirables um they would eat like bush honeysuckle cattle <laughs> browse on that stuff <laughs> can, like crazy can it,
1: yeah we could do it the, with a little bit less of that
0: right yeah i mean they will they will uh disturb the soil layer and the leaf litter and do th- so if you can't if you're in to just like it's really difficult for you to do a prescribed fire in your timber mm-hmm. if you could flash graze it with cattle it, you would get a lot of the same effects that you would if you were trying to burn but it's like oh i don't have the help or i don't have good fire breaks or i don't you know there's too much fuel there i can't yeah. run a fire through mm-hmm. it run cattle through it i mean it, yep. so mm-hmm. learning from people who know a lot more about this than i do so i'm talking about it more than i should because i'm I don't want to come off like an expert in all of that. No, but it's, it's super interesting. I've heard,
1: I've heard some of this before. You know, a new – well, an old concept that's kind of regaining up uh, – I don't want to say popularity, I guess, but maybe just notice is uh, paddock grazing. Um, mm-hmm. Gabe Brown up in uh, South Dakota, um, he was on that film uh, Kiss the Ground. The, I think it's still on Netflix if you haven't watched it. It's a great, great film. Strongly recommend it to anyone. Gabe is one of the experts that they bring in, and uh, he totally transformed his family's cattle operation doing a lot of the things you just talked about. Mm-hmm. And uh, spot on with that, for sure. And and the other thing, too, um, with that disturbance, which we actually mimic this on our acres mm-hmm. uh, at, at Hoxie for our big blue stem, uh, um, just last summer, right, Nick? Uh, Carol went through and ripped real lightly at the – the roots of our big blue stem, just to kind of simulate what buffalo hooves would have done to the prairie, you know, a couple hundred years ago, uh, to stimulate some thicker growth mm-hmm. and uh, uh, mm-hmm. keep it from being so root bound, you know, and the you know, one plant has a root system that's taken up so much square footage instead of you know putting some of that biomass above the the soil level, but um, yeah, a lot of that, and then also the nutrient input right, from the fertilizer cabin. yep you're, you're fertilizing those acres mm-hmm. when you're when you're grazing them so yeah that's that's really smart so you guys are making making good use out here though I mean and you talked about yeah. the orchards and the bees and and um, certainly uh, your efforts with with putting in some prairie acres is I'm sure helped with that but also even those fruit trees great for for pollinators and do you guys – how do you guys get through the winter with your bees? Do you have to ship them off somewhere? Or are you able to winter them okay?
0: So, um, mixed results, you know. I mean, we've been doing bees for a few years now. My mom has been doing them longer, and she kind of got us into them. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the people who've been around me or worked around me know that, like, I, I love honey. I love I love bees. I love everything that they do. I've got a big appreciation for them. Not a big fan of them being in my personal space. <laughs> yeah. So I I was slower to come to like, all right, we need to have beehives. Like, I I knew we wanted them, but I just personally didn't really want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. Maybe my mom will come out and put out some beehives for yeah. us or what you know. So um, she kind of got us started and whatever. And Jackie took uh, a big interest in it right away and she dove in and started learning a lot. And she's like, all right, we're gonna put out more hives. We're gonna you know. And I'm like. All of a sudden, we're starting to get quite a bit of honey. And I'm like, how many hives can we fit out here? You know, like, <laughs> this, I'm not trying to turn this into another part time job or anything, but, you know, um, it's really cool to see a hive, a colony that's thriving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, while she does most of the, the work in the suit, I'll go down there and help her and whatever and just kind of help check on things. And yep. so we do, we have some insulated enclosures that we'll put up around oh, the really. hives through the wintertime, um, but they're pretty well sheltered where they're at. They're kind of, you know, they're they're blocked from the wind. They're on a the south uh, southwest south central kind of facing hillside, sure. and they're you know behind. They're about midway down the hill. They get full sun, um, but they don't get the wind and that kind of stuff. So finding the right yeah. spot for them mm-hmm. is is very helpful uh, in making sure that you get a higher survival rate. But bees are finicky critters man i mean oh, there's yeah. there's some you yeah. can you can do just about everything right and sometimes kind of like growing a food plot sometimes neighbor, nature just doesn't seem to want to cooperate and you're yeah. like i don't understand what happened here um one example real quick we had a one of the hives that we had down there last year uh opened it up in the spring and it's empty like there's mm. just no bees in it there's plenty of honey but just no bees and uh and the other one you know is absolutely loaded and we said all right well We'll figure this out later. Let's move this one. And, and I brought it up here with the skid steer and set it right next to the door of the shop. And it sat there because we were busy, you know, sat there for a week, 10 days, turned into two weeks. And all of a sudden, one day I'm walking out and it was pretty warm that day. And I look over there, there's a bunch of bees flying in and out of that hive. And I talked to my Uh-oh. dad about it. I'm like, <laughs> what do you think's going on with that? And he says, oh, it's probably bees from your other hive. And they're just robbing the yep. honey out of it. He's like, well, I would just let them, you know, just let them steal that honey and build up their store and stuff. And, or they're just eating, you know, whatever. And that went on for another week or two. And then next thing you know, like there is a pile of bees (laughs) and it's right by the primary entrance that I walked through to come into the office, you know, like I really probably should have put that somewhere else before it's loaded (laughs) with bees or whatever. It ended up sitting there all year long. And I pretty well got over my fear of bees because I'm just like, all right. I'm going in the office, bees. You'll just have to let me by. <laughs> yeah. oh, and I just yeah. close my eyes and walk into, you know, open the door yep. up and come walking right in it kind of became a joke that they were like, there are guard dogs. Yeah. <laughs> we have security right. bees. No one, no <laughs> one's the door. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's a great living. idea. Yeah, there you go. That's your tip
1: here. If you, uh, have, you know, you're living in an area, you're a little, little fearful of, uh, people breaking in.
2: just put a beehive right by your main entrance. <laughs> literally, <laughs> literally like 12 <laughs> inches from Imagine the door. Right, right in the middle of, uh, suburbia. <laughs> just right. having a beehive right by your front door. The <laughs> yeah. mailman an- never yeah, brings it to
0: Amazon or UPS people will hate you. Yeah. No, that's true. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it is also. Yeah. Go ahead.
2: We had, uh, I mean, because we, we've had bees growing up, and then uh, I remember particularly growing up hoeing the purple prairie clover field, mm-hmm. and it, there was like a minute every day, like a specific minute where all of a sudden it was filled with bees. I don't remember what the time was, but I remember being 12 and like constantly looking at my phone being like, okay... I've got four minutes before the bees (laughs) there. And it was like from dead silent to like the whole field humming like a semi-truck is really cool. And and you just get over it after a while. As long as the only time I would ever get stung is if they'd get stuck in my shoe or in a glove. Like if they get stuck somewhere. But if you're just walking through, they're not. Especially if you're in a field, not near their hive, they don't care about you. And uh, we had um, Rough Blazing Star this year just covered in bees. Because it was about the – it was one of the last – um flowering things we had on the farm covered in bees and monarch butterflies just covered orange and yellow everywhere in this purple field it's beautiful one of my favorite parts of the farm yeah
1: yeah so it's it's awesome that you guys have done that definitely a conservation side to what you're doing as well and and uh again kind of even going back to your example the meat processing the value that you're looking for has nothing to do with uh green pieces of paper. It's a, it's a different currency that, that your in return on investment looks like with, with a lot of what you're doing. And it's so important that people develop that because uh, like you said, the, what's been handed down to us culturally uh, through, through generations of farming here in the Midwest is almost to treat your land like a credit card to be maxed out instead of a bank account to be, managed you know where Mm. where part of part of uh making a wise decision is doing nothing sometimes leaving it alone allow it to allow it to be its own place and and you know in the whitetail world of course you have i you know the whole sanctuary theory and stuff like that where people will will leave a part of their their farm totally alone you know it could be something like that um or it could be you know what, we kind of got to rip everything up and start over and do this the right way because down the road, it's going to be a better decision instead of what's the cheap thing right now, which that brings me to kind of our, our next question here from, you know, someone's listening to this and they maybe they just purchased a, a piece of ground and and they're looking to start managing it. I got to imagine that there's a huge temptation to look at, wow, you know, this piece of ground has got a lot of needs. I don't really know how to do 70% of the big things that have to be done here, but I do know how to do these 30% things over here. And I don't know if they're necessarily in the right order, but I know how to do them. And uh, will you know where to start? <laughs> yeah, and and is there a way that people can jump into a restoration project and because they didn't have a long term enough mindset that they can do a bunch of work up front that doesn't necessarily help them in the long run. You kind of talked about the food plot problem mm-hmm. that a lot of people just at. Like, hey, you know what that place needs? That needs
0: a food plot. Cause I know how to do a food plot. Mm-hmm. They're making a farm. 1% mm-hmm. better um, is better than not making it, you know, not changing it at all. Sure. Um, so, It's good, you know, if somebody has a basic idea how to do some of those things, I'm not ever going to discourage that person. I'm not going to say, like, well, you just don't know what you're doing. You should just not do anything, right? Right? Well, it's the same thing, like, applies to forest management. The biggest reason that most people who own a, let's say, a recreational-type farm, farm that's, you Mm -hmm. know, not your typical row crop or cattle operation, it's got a a lot of habitat Mm -hmm. on it, Uh, the biggest reason that most of them never touch the timber is because they're intimidated by their lack of knowledge. They don't sure. know what tree species look like for the most. They might know what an oak tree is, but beyond mm-hmm. that, they don't know. Like what's good, what's bad. Right. Uh, what should I be planting? What should I be killing? Should I have a, a crop harvest? Uh, they they become so overwhelmed with their lack of knowledge about it that they just literally live in paralysis and they don't touch it. They don't do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I've had occasions where, like doing a, a land or habitat consultation, and we're I'm walking through and identifying some of the species for them that are bad or, you know, not as right. desirable need to be removed and talking about, you know, several of these different species. And they're like, Oh, they're taking notes. They're taking pictures. They're talking, you know, they're trying to you know wrap their head around This is overwhelming. Like, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm going to remember half of what you just said. Mm-hmm. Like, well, you remember what this one is, right? Yeah. That's hedge. Oh, okay. You remember what this one is? Yeah. That's honey locust or this is, you know, whatever. And said if you just started with that, that makes up twenty five to thirty percent of this stand of timber. If you killed all of those, you improved your timber by a lot. Mm -hmm. So so start with that. And then as you're doing that work, you're gonna become more familiar with some of the other species around you. If you just learn two or three new species every, you know, every year, within a couple of years, you're gonna have a really good idea of what you've got on your property. Right. And like I don't, I don't know everything there is to know about you know hobby farming or about like I didn't know anything about ducks or chickens. We started buying ducks or chickens. Didn't keep me from buying them. Yeah, I was like, well, I want eggs. So you you know, you know what the goal is, and so you just decide to jump in and start learning through doing Mm -hmm. to some extent. Now, like this is a shameless plug, because I do a lot of this for a living. Yeah, Uh, I can save people a lot of money. And that is a a part of my job that I absolutely love doing. Save you a lot of time uh, and a lot of effort and like, well, we did this, we did that, but it didn't really bear the fruit that we were after uh, because we didn't do it in the right order, like you said, or um, maybe we just didn't do the whole process right. Um, So doing habitat consultations, you know, is something that I offer and we do it. um, We do it usually January through the middle part of April. Okay. You know, once the deer season closes, but before the foliage is, is up and the, the property is really thick. Mm -hmm. That's when you can really see the entire landscape and you can still see everything that's there. That's good. Um, you can see what's there that needs work and all that sort of thing. And it's, if you know what you're doing, then you can still identify all of the plant species that you need to identify Then, But, um, so I started to ramble. Your question was no. Well, so, so yeah, you're,
1: you know, people can jump in and they can they can do things almost out of order that do not help them in the long run. So, uh, I think you made a great point though too of as far as hey, if there are some things that you really can't hurt yourself by just like for instance, removing invasive plants from from a stain of timber. If you know how to run a chainsaw or some kind of trimmer and and uh, you got a bunch of multi floor rows or or something like that growing up in your timber bush honeysuckle and you say you know what i don't know much but i know how to go in and and cut that stuff out you know you're you're helping yourself but there's also some things too uh where a guy you know the the biggest one from the hunting side of things is well this place just needs more food i got to jump in right away and mm-hmm. i need if i if i want to be able to shoot a deer from that tree over there i need to have a food plot right there or i need to have a little orchard there yeah. or i need to have you know, something that isn't necessarily long, you know, knowing what they know now compared to what they should know 10 years from now, they might look at what making that decision and be like, why did I do that then? I should have been spending my time and money doing this instead. Yeah. What are some of those things that people mix up, you feel like, where they kind of, Instead of making their farm 100% better 25 years from now, Mm -hmm. they can only make it 65% better.
0: Yeah. So a lot of of my clients are fairly knowledgeable, um, you know, with, like, maybe this is their first time owning a piece of ground, but they've been leasing or they've had family ground they've hunted for, you know, most of their life and that sort of thing. I do have a few that are absolute greenhorns and totally Mm -hmm. new. Like, I don't know anything. Teach me what I need to know. Um, But a lot of them... You know, I've spent a fair time, a fair amount of time consuming information from YouTube or, or whatever, mm-hmm. or taking some classes and trying to trying to figure out how do I start off on the right path? That's great. Yep. Doing some research ahead of time before you just jump in and buy a piece of ground or whatever. Um, but they typically will hit a plateau somewhere along the lines within the first two, three, four, five years maybe of owning it. They'll see some immediate uh, improvement from the work that they did and then it just never really gets to the goal that they had in mind or it never really looks as good as it should or never holds as many deer or turkey or you know i i don't know why we're struggling with uh our our prairie grass stand just does not look good at all and we did a burn or oh we've we've been burning or this they they don't know that timing has a lot to do with the end result as well so like you can do the right things but if you do it at the wrong time you're not going to get the result you want either. Mm-hmm. So we've seen people that would burn in the fall or burn in January um, and that sort of thing. If they were wanting to make a really tall, thick stand of, of prairie grass and have it uh, as robust and, and offer the best thermal cover they can, let's say it's, you know, for security purpose for deer or to offer a really good quality bedding, they're burning at the wrong time. You know, right. If, yeah. if you want to make your grass stand as thick as possible, then burn as late as you possibly can. Yeah. <clears throat> so, you know, which is what we do here. What you mentioned, how tall and thick our stand of grasses is, as you come down. It's for a couple of reasons. Is this great bird cover right here? No, not really. Um, Does it offer lots of forbs for, you know, for does to feed on while the fawns are nursing? No, not really. We have that, but that's further down the hill next to the timber. Mm -hmm. Right here, we burn this as late as we possibly can every single year because we want a thick, tall, robust stand of grasses. One, it's attractive it yep. looks good it when does. you pull it in down the driveway nice. it feels good to look at it and it's that's a big part of why we have prairie grass literally three feet off of our driveway on both sides Is because we'll, that's what we want to look at <laughs> right but the other thing is it's functional it catches all the snow and i i'll do plow the snow but i really don't have to yep. because it doesn't drift in our driveway like yep. the snow falls and then it doesn't blow around the the grass holds it yeah um, it also holds water It it keeps us from having any erosion issues and it does Mm -hmm. it does a lot of good things for us um but it looks the way that it does because we manage it the way that we do Mm -hmm. we've never had to use fertilizer or herbicide on it at all and i've never in 12 years i've never even seeded this 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 area that was here it it looked like an overgrown cattle pasture that had been heavily grazed and Mm -hmm. neglected and whatever it had been in a crp contract for quite a while but um they never did any mid contract management stuff. And it was just, it was bad. Sure. Um, But the seed was there. And so all we had to do was just manage it properly to get it to look the way that we wanted it to look. Mm -hmm. So those are things that like, um, people just, they need to be open to learning more about the process. And I think like occasionally, yeah, somebody thinks like, "Ah, I know this, I got this figured out and whatever. And, but secretly, even if they never admit it out loud, their farm or their land never gets to the point that they hoped that it would get to because they quit learning somewhere along the way, or they were too, um, I guess, stubborn or proud to ask for help or Mm. to, to seek out somebody who's like, Hey, look at this, you know, tell me what I need to do differently. Um, And I think when we're willing to do that, like there's a lot we can all learn from each other.
1: Yeah. Well, I I think that, we can take away that common theme there that information is just our biggest, our biggest tool for good decision-making on our properties. And, and uh, you know, something else that plays off of this that we've, Chase and I have had a conversation just, just touched on briefly in the past was, and again, we can talk in the context of hunting here, uh, I wish you guys could see. Nick was like his. I had to pick his jaw off the floor for him when he walked in <laughs> here. or There, and he's like, "This place is sweet." Yeah, uh, but, it is but awesome. you, you, where we're at right now, there's a bunch of incredible uh, Illinois whitetails on the wall, and and just a uh, real testament to takes good gra- takes good ground to grow good bucks. And uh, there's there's definitely that testament here. But so from but kind of working in that context of hunting which uh, both chase and I are, are very passionate about um, guys can get and I shouldn't just say guys landowners can get very hung up on managing for one thing you know uh, I all I need is switchgrass all I need is yeah, uh yep. all I need is uh, a Miscanthus uh, screen all I need is, you know and you can go on and on because that's what the, what works for deer and you'll find going back to the idea of watching youtube and reading art you'll find plenty of youtube videos and, and podcasts and articles that support those ideas that yeah you need to go get yourself you know this it's a hybrid now so it won't spread uh yeah. this this invasive grass species to plant or um, you, you you know good. essentially you're mono, instead of monocropping with corn you're monocropping with switchgrass and Yes, that will work. You'll get good results for Mm -hmm. hunting whitetails. But shouldn't our idea as stewards of the ground be, our mindset be bigger than that? We
0: should want to take a more holistic approach that includes all these other species. Yeah. You're talking about the land ethic. Yes. So Aldo Aldo Leopold described it with that term. And that's, that's like... I read that when I was a teenager and most of my life has kind of revolved around the concept of the land ethic. Mm -hmm. So treating land in a way that it's a community that you belong to rather than a commodity that you abuse. Yeah. Um, So the, the, the problem, like my wife said something really intelligent too, I guess this morning, I'm going to give her credit for a quote too. And, Mm -hmm. and she would pass this on that. She heard it from one of her good friends who's actually uh, like-minded and very intelligent about farming and land management stuff too. Sure. But um, she said, "You you will find whatever you look for." Mm. So when you're talking about uh, these people who have in their head because they saw on a TV show or read in a magazine or saw on Facebook or in whatever that uh, you know the way to hold deer is to plant just a pure stand of switchgrass, mm-hmm. they they get that that idea planted in their mind. And then everywhere that they look, that's what they see because that's what they're looking for. They're trying to reinforce something that like, well, I understand this. I know this. So everywhere they look, they're going to see that again and again and again. Now if they questioned that mentality and said, well, like what else could I do for wildlife Mm -hmm. or what else could I do for deer? Or should I just be managing for only whitetails? They don't ask themselves that question because they get set on that one track where it's like I want this to be the best deer hunting because that's why I bought it. It's expensive, and I pay a lot of money every you know every month for my uh, mortgage so that I have a piece of land that I can deer hunt on. Right. So I want what's best for deer. Well, guess what? You know what's best for deer is actually best for a lot of other species. Mm -hmm. Mm. And we can get too focused on trying to make a piece of property uh, look like. Something that was in a magazine, or something that you know somebody spoke about once, or whatever, it, you cherry pick out those really good elements and say, "That's what I need. That's all I need, and that's all I'm going to put on my property." Um, but deer don't live that way. They don't live in that kind of world, you mm-hmm. know. Yep. So you know, to to benefit. I guess there's two sides to that. There's the people who only want to manage for white tailed deer, whatever their choice species is. Right. And they go at the land management aspect or habitat development aspect uh, with that approach in mind. And then there's the other people that say, well, I want a farm that's just really good for all wildlife because I love nature and whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and they're going to apply a different set of practices. And the, the end result a lot of times is that the people who manage just because they like nature are kind of have probably better deer hunting than the people who are specifically yeah. trying to manage for deer because mm-hmm. they painted themselves in a box and, and they didn't allow for, you know, God's greater plan. Right. Right. Yep. <laughs> we yeah. all think that It'll we know better. For that community, right. We all think that like, well, I know what to do with this. And so that's, that's how you go about it instead of like, no, you know, it was created this way and the white tail absolutely thrived. And, you know, and then some people will argue with that and they'll say, well, research shows, Chase, that there's a lot more deer today than there were 200 years ago. Okay, true. True. Mm -hmm. You know, we we don't have nearly the prairie that we used to have. Instead, we have open crop fields. And yet somehow we still have more deer today than we had way back then. Well, we also had wolves and we had bears and we had... Uh, elk and we had bison and we had antelope and we had all of these other creatures that they shared that space with yep. and they don't live here anymore because we didn't let them. Yep. So because of that, it, we created, you know, in some ways we kind of almost made the monoculture of deer Yeah, when we sure. should have a lot that's more, sure. yep. we should have a lot more biology here than mm-hmm. what we do. Um, so trying to restore different aspects of what were originally here are going to benefit that species a lot. So. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I agree. I think, I think that that's as good as you could say it for sure. So uh, as we, as we close up here, you're obviously a passionate guy about, I mean, passionate enough to jump off the, jump off the cliff into the world that you're in now and, and you've made a go of it, which is really cool. Um, you're in a way operating. I don't know if this is necessarily your intention, but you're kind of operating as a small farm and, and um, small farms are all but dead in, in America. And it's a, it's a sad reality. You know, I kind of alluded to that earlier when I said, it, it's kind of like the word "ope" <laughs> in the Midwest. Every, almost every Midwester could talk about the farm their family used to own. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, why is it important that we try and regain some of that? Uh it, ranching operations on smaller acreages uh, mm-hmm. uh just people that are growing more of the food that they consume mm-hmm. um uh, how would that how can we get people to
0: identify a value that comes from that do you think yeah um so i guess the first part of my answer is why is it important because it's our heritage Um, why is anybody's heritage important? You know, I mean, because if we don't do it, it'll be lost within another generation or two. There won't be anybody around that knows how to grow their own garden. (laughs) There won't be, uh, very many people out there that know how to care for and raise livestock. They're just, it, it won't. You know, luckily, and I see this because it's my circle and I've really dove down into the rabbit hole, but I think a lot of people are kind of still oblivious to the fact that homesteading has been something that there's been a resurgence in. In yeah, the last is, three sure. or four or five years, mm-hmm. um, a lot of people feel that loss of connection with where mm-hmm. their food came from, um, you know, and buying every literally everything from the grocery store and thinking that meat wasn't grown on an animal, that it just yeah. comes wrapped in cellophane, you yep. know. So we are intentional about that because we want to raise not just our kids, but we're, we're big educators and we want to, you know, have as many people share that experience as possible, um, to, to know that you're part of a system, you're part of a food chain and that food doesn't just come from a grocery store. So small farms are important because of that. Mm -hmm. If, if only that, that is enough reason. Yeah what we do is try to preserve that heritage. Uh, we try to bring a sense of community around that. We grow not just the food that we need, but we grow enough to share and to sell with other local people so that they get a taste of that. If they're not able to, or they don't have a piece of land to, or whatever to grow their own cattle, uh, or to grow their own garden or their own apples or whatever, they can get it from somewhere close by. They know where it came from and they can come and see it and they can taste it and they can use it and they can say, well, that's pretty cool. You know, that, uh, that that's a connection that they become closer to. Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing that the small farms do is, is honestly, it's a security thing. Think, think back when you guys were in school, you maybe saw, uh, some history lessons that talked about the first and second world war, uh, when they were promoting, uh, freedom gardens, they would say, you know, you got to plant a garden to help us defeat Germany. And if you yeah. know, plant, you know, have some hens in your backyard so that you can have your own food. Right. They they wanted that sustainability because uh, a society, a culture that's able to do some of those things for themselves is not nearly as vulnerable.
2: Yeah.
0: Wow. It, life is harder. But when we are willing to do a lot of those things for ourselves, then we're not so dependent on yeah. the government or on, you know, uh, imports, let's say, or... yes, imports, let's say foreign countries that maybe yeah. we don't always have the best relations with or whatever. Yeah. And when, when COVID wow. hit, and you have these massive supply chain issues and you can't get, uh, you can't get beef from Argentina anymore and you can't get, you know, avocados from Mexico or you can't get whatever. It's like, well, what do you do? People freak out, you know, yeah. they're in the, the grocery store shelves are barren and whatever. Yeah. It's like, we never missed a beat, you know, mm-hmm. Be- because, uh, we have everything that we need to supply our family and our friends, whatever, with, with what they have to have. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, so being self-sufficient, uh, is, is a lifestyle, I guess, but you know, in reality it's, it's a dying culture that we mm-hmm. really have to try to preserve and and hopefully that we can help restore because as cities grow and more people you know these small farms that all have these farmhouses on I'm just going to get dragging out this episode too long probably on the no, stop No 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 do you have all these small farms that used to be 80 or 100 acres and they all had a farmhouse on it and they had a couple of barns because they raised 80 acres of crops they had some chickens they had a garden they had a couple of pigs in the back that they butchered and as those families moved away from the farm and the kids didn't come back and grandma and grandpa passed away or moved on, whatever those farms sold to adjacent landowners, bigger farms. So the average farm size grew from 80 to hundred acres to now over a thousand acres. You know, yeah. so you have larger and larger farming operations. There's less people in connection with actually growing that food. Yeah. A large supply of the world's food comes from the Midwest and we're responsible for that. And every year fewer and fewer people are responsible yeah. for that. Yep. So, mm. by doing some of those things yourself, you're kind of removing yourself from that dependency, from that which, and honestly, it benefits everybody else. It's one less yep. mouth that the world has to feed. I'll yeah. take care of myself. You know. So it's, um, and the more people that we can encourage to do that and help do that, the better off we'll all be. Yeah. Mm.
1: Yeah. Very well said. That I would. I would agree to everything chase just mentioned and and you do see it from a historical standpoint um guy who we're gonna interview later tonight um who uh isn't isn't uh doesn't need to be as politically correct he's gonna he's gonna drop the hammer on a lot of stuff and uh it's gonna be a good episode oh it's gonna be yeah (laughs) it's gonna be good and i'm very excited for it. it and uh he we were talking the other night and he said you know i when my grandmother was living i asked her about The depression era and how she was affected by that it was exactly as chase said her answer was well we we really weren't because we didn't buy food from anywhere we we raised all our own meat all our own Mm. vegetables right here and
2: uh very few people do that now Uh and i wonder if when they're teaching in high school sorry to just cut you off but when they're teaching in high school about the great depression and they're talking about like i wonder if that was just The majority was just in cities. I wonder if you know, just the country, were like, well, we we always had to collect our own wood to heat the house. So I don't, you know, I don't know, yeah, nothing changed for us. Well, and
1: I imagine you know there were probably aspects of agriculture even at that time that were becoming more corporate model. You know, think of like dairy farming. You know, when Mm -hmm. where you're you're very dependent on having a customer base that's buying buying your milk because your cows produce far more than your family could consume. Sixty to
0: seventy five years ago the vast majority of people in the united states were at most one generation removed from the farm Mm -hmm. so uh if they didn't grow up on a farm or didn't live on a farm somebody in their family did their grandparents their parents whatever somebody came from a rural upbringing that had a dairy cow and had a garden and had some ground that they farmed or kept some sheep or whatever right so the, the vast majority of people that you would run into even if it was in you know downtown new york uh, they they had some level of exposure or experience to it, yeah. and that's not the case anymore. Because yeah, like I said, true. there's fewer people actually doing it. So that that butterfly effect means that most of the people who don't live here have never experienced it. They don't have yeah. a family member that tells those stories about oh, we used to have to go out and milk the cows before yeah. work. Uh, so it's you know trying to bring some of that back, I guess, just so people understand what what's being lost. Yeah. It's yeah, important. It's mm-hmm. a good point.
1: Yeah, the Great Chicago Fire started by Mrs. O'Leary's cow, right? <laughs> and uh, I don't know when that was. That would be the 1890s, early 1900s, something like that. You know, so one of the biggest cities in America was burned by somebody's cow and, you know, starting a barn fire. Hard to imagine a barn fire happening in Chicago, Illinois. Yeah. Today. But, but you're right. You know, at not, that, not super long ago, people were a lot more connected to agriculture and, and you know. Yeah being self-sufficient and and all that. And to kind of wrap this one up and go all the way back full circle to something that we started with, with the story of the oak wilt, Chase said the way they weathered that storm was they didn't have all their eggs in one basket. And if everyone buys into the industrial ag model, we're putting all our eggs in one basket. And we need the people to hang on to that heritage as Chase talked about, to to remember the old ways, right? And uh, to, to preserve... What that is before we really, really need it again, and we will, and and probably not in our lifetime, you know. But but uh, it's our job to pass it down, so when that lifetime for whoever it is comes, they got the tools, the knowledge, and the land, because that's the other Mm -hmm. thing uh, to make that adjustment and uh, to keep going, keep this great country going and and functioning. But
2: yeah, and we've. We've talked a lot about land management today, and we do want to mention at Hoxie Native Seeds, something that we have found instrumental for our um, small piece in helping people manage their land is the, before we close out, the old Hoxie drill. It's technically not a drill. It's a cedar. So uh, if anyone is interested in the native cedar, the Hoxie Native Seeds, it goes straight down the road. You can pull it with a pickup, any of sort, but... The reason, um, the reason my dad designed it was because um, people just couldn't afford these, these giant, giant cedars, and so the NRCS always had one, but that one was always a pain because you had to put it on a trailer or you know come to town with your tractor and pick it up if you did yep. and it, you know it, and, and they wore out. So he designed his own, and, and we use them all the time. We rent them out, but uh, we found more and more land managers are finding interest in them. Uh, for uh, uh, just because you know they're not very big, 10 ten and a half foot can get in and yeah, out of, of small see. places. And all
1: you need know, is what's what's minimum horsepower you need to Oh those? man,
2: I think someone told me they used a fifty-five horsepower track. Not recommended. We recommend eighty or more. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's a nice, it's a it's a fun little piece of equipment. I think that's yeah. using one of those. That's how Kent learned how to drive a tractor, right? That's, that's-
1: Yep. Yeah. Well, that's when I planted my first, uh, planted my first prairie was definitely on the old Hoxie cedar. So.
2: Well, I didn't want to let the episode go by talking about, I mean, I just sat here in silence in awe about how much <laughs> you knew about land management and how much thought Chase has put behind it. Like he has his full, he's a full belief system behind everything they're saying, a lot of conviction. So his words aren't falling flat on ears. They really have some oomph behind them. And, uh, yeah, so, the, appreciate the proof, time you know, the
1: you. proof. We, you see yeah. it all around us right now. And so, uh, I, I think, Nick, you're spot on there. And that's a great way how we normally end our podcast, right? The proof is in the pudding, as you can see here with uh, Chase Burns of uh, Dogwood Land Management and Land Guys uh, uh, Land Sales. Uh, conservation happens one yard at a time.